Hey gang, welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher. This episode made possible from support by my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher and my awesome subscribers on Spotify. If you'd like to know more, click the link in the description or all the way at the bottom of the show notes to subscribe on Spotify. It's fall into Great Plains in the Midwest, and that only means one thing, deer season. If it didn't start for you, it's going to be right around the corner. If you're having trouble finding hunters to come out and help you manage your deer population, go sign up your land on landtrust.com. Click the link in the show notes. There's also plenty of quail on the ranch this year. As a matter of fact, I just booked my second quail hunting party through Land Trust. Speaking of birds, let me remind you about Bubble Links, the delicious, tangy, smoky, awesome on-the-go meat snack. It's great for snacking. I always have one handy when I need a midday boost. Bubble Links are just one of great many great products from Blue Nest Beef. Check out Blue Nest Beef's website for delicious, shipped right to your door, grass-fed and finished beef from Autobahn Conservation Ranching certified bird-friendly ranches just like mine. Click on the link under the description or go to bluenestbeef.com and enter the code BOBOREBOOT for a discount on your first pack of Bobo Links. Next up is the Essentials of Regenerative Ranching Course Scholarship, and the winner is... Isaac Brin, you're going to Ardmore October 31st and November 1st, so check your email for more information on that. Huge thanks to all of y'all that entered. I'm going to try to do something for you guys in the future. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My guest is Walker Milhone, who joined me on Zoom from the Bridger Bowl just outside of Bozeman, Montana. We talk about a little bit of everything from ranching in Montana, hill skiing in Alaska, to living in a tent alongside the White Nile in Africa so he could kayak for a year before they dammed up the river. We'll get to that right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Walker. How are you today? I'm doing well. Doing really well. Glad to be here. Well, thanks for uh, coming today. So let's start us off. Tell us a little bit about yourself, about where you're at. Okay. Um, I am located in Bozeman, Montana, which I'm sure everybody knows about these days. It seems like everybody's moving here, um, half in part thanks to the show Yellowstone. I blame Kevin for that. Um <laughs> Well, Kevin and it's a nice, yeah. Okay. There's a there's a bumper sticker that goes around here that has a picture of his face that says I blame Kevin. Um, but no, it's a great place to live, and we actually live 16 miles outside of town, up at Bridger Bowl, which is a local ski hill here, and um, and then I work for it's uh, a ranch that's in the in the canyon, kind of just below my house, a few miles. So I do that in the mornings. And, um, right now there's a roughly 450 first calf heifers that are up there and then, um, work there till about noon. And then when I'm done doing that, I come in here and, uh, mainly build websites and kind of 
web applications and stuff. Uh, and I've had clients like Yeti, uh, Sitka, and now it's kind of trending to more um, ag-based um, applications or businesses, stuff like that. Okay, very cool. Are you from Montana? No, I was actually uh, born and raised in Vail, Colorado, of all places. And my family moved there before it was Vail. Um, and so then it kind of, you know, the town grew up. And my grandfather had a ranch in Rifle, Colorado, which was, it's about 60 miles west of there. Okay. And so I'd go there in the summers and help out. And um, my dad is from Nebraska. He moved to Vail in 1962, the year that it was, well, I think 64. So it was officially incorporated as a town in 1962. Um, so the town was only 18 years old when I was born and um, still pretty small, very community oriented. Then a lot different than what it is now. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. It's a big ski resort. I've been there a couple of times. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, but Vail is one, oh, yeah, one of my favorite places to go. Okay. Cool. let's get into it uh so i saw on your instagram that you're a heli skiing guide oh yeah i was for for five years for a company called points north heli adventures which is out of cordova alaska okay so you would go to alaska and like take people way up in the mountains on a helicopter and jump out yeah it's uh you know it's not as dramatic i guess as people you know you don't just like jump out of the helicopter but um so the season starts late February because it's too dark prior to that, right? Um, and then up there, you gain about six and a half minutes of daylight a day. And um, and then so throughout the course of the season, you know, by the end of the season, which is late uh, March or early April, like I think it's late March. Um, so you're not there very long. But, uh, you know, the days are real long and you can ski forever. Um, and then, yeah, you, it, it's cool. The base is located in an old salmon cannery um, in Cordova. And Cordova is a old just fishing village and there's no roads or um, anything in and out of it. So you're kind of on an island. Um, there was a railroad track that was built um, that was going to connect it to, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was called the million dollar bridge and, a, and the bridge fell down. So that was kind of the only way out of it besides flying or the ferry. Um, but yeah, you clients show up and you fly an A star helicopters. I'm sure you're familiar with those. Yeah. Um, so the, there's a pilot and then the guide usually sits in the front and then there's four clients in the back and um, go up to a peak uh, get out, helicopter takes off. And then generally you send the clients first so that you can kind of clean up the mess. If something happens, <laughs> <laughs> that happened pretty often. Uh, it had not as much as you think, cause most of the people that show up, there are pretty advanced skiers. Cause it's, uh, it's like advanced terrain. It's kind of like the North shore of surfing for, you know, it's like the, upper echelon but there are definitely there's definitely beginner stuff like that's real long and mellow and, and nice so but typically the majority of the clientele is pretty advanced yeah now full disclosure i say that i've skied and i and i have skied before i've done 
I think my best year, I think I did 14 days in the mountains. And I know okay. that's probably, that's nothing, but you know, for a flatlander like me, that's got to drive, you know, eight, 10 hours to, to yeah. get to someplace to ski. You know, that, that was, it was a lot. And yeah. you know, I got to where I could go back in the back country at Vail and, you know, do a lot of the black diamond and double black diamond stuff back there, but not moguls, definitely not moguls and do not, go, I'm, I'm not across the ropes kind of guy. That sounds really, really intense. <laughs> Yeah, it can it can be intense for sure because uh, especially you know there's like film crews that come up for ski movies that are like you know for professional skiers and you're with them so you're in their terrain and actually it, you used to ski with them but you kind of it kind of evolved to where the guide would would drop you off or drop the the professionals off and then stay in the helicopter while they were filming just in case something happened that you could get to them quicker. That makes um, sense. Yeah. But no, nonetheless, you're like, yeah, sometimes, I mean, the last year I was there um, and I had kids or had eight, my first child and that changed my risk tolerance. So I was on top of a peak and almost passed out just from vertigo. It was weird. That, and then I kind of, Kids have a way of messing with that risk tolerance matrix, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if I need to do quite this anymore, but. How how did you get into that? Like that, that seems like that's a pretty narrow pool of applicants. It seems like a job a lot of people would want, but not very many people would be able to qualify for. Yeah, it is. Um, So I actually, I was, I taught skiing for a year just as an instructor in Vail. And I had a friend named Kevin Hussey who was, best friends with the owner and um kevin so kevin quinn owns points north heli adventures or i think he just sold it but uh, at the time he owned it and he offered kevin hussey my friend the only chance to come ski for free um and so he asked me to go with him and he convinced the owner to give me like a really good discount and, and you know i was like man i can't pass that up and so went there uh i don't know i you know i skied with uh dean conway who's like the one of the old kind of crusty guides from the 90s and uh and then when i was leaving they offered me a job and i think at the time i was the youngest heli ski guide ever in alaska i was 24 when i got the job okay that's kind of wild yeah it was pretty it was cool it was pretty it was an honor to get that offer because yeah they have a they have a lot of applicants very cool i i can remember i've done a gone up and done snowcat skiing gone up to i think it was keystone went up to a back bowl in keystone on a snowcat that was pretty fun that was also one of those days i think it was also like a mid-december day when it was a nice balmy 12 below zero and you know about (laughs) nine thousand miles an hour wind it was just a great to be out on the mountains yeah, that's how generally how the weather is in Keystone. Yep, we're and it's windy in Breckenridge. Yep, yep, and it's usually nice at Vale. <laughs> Breckenridge. <laughs> I heard it Brecken wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vale is usually really nice. So I had uh, they had used to have this thing called an Epic Pass. You familiar with that? Yeah, they still do have it. This was I, I think they'd only had it for a couple of years and it was it was a really good deal. And I thought it was awesome because you know it'd track your vertical footage for the day. Um, 
there was a day I went out with a friend and it was, wasn't too long after opening. I think it was early December maybe. And we ended up at Breckenridge and they got six inches of powder overnight and we stayed over on seven all day. And my pass told me that I rode over 36,000 vertical feet that day. That's cool. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. Cause it's, I mean, it's a lot of vert and those chairs are fast and, and it, it yeah, wasn't crowded. Cool. So we we're just run, run, ski right down, ski right on, get on the chair, go right back up again. Very cool. So yeah, you just get on 70 and head straight West, huh? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's, it's two hours North I 70 and you know, yeah. then you just set the cruise and book it until things get vertical. Okay. Yeah. And not to change subjects, but my dad's from Lexington, Nebraska. So he spent like a lot of time out in the plains and, and, uh, he would always take like some roundabout way to get there. So, um, I, I started taking more and more back roads, you know, there's a time and place when you just, when you want to get somewhere and you want to be yeah. there and get on the interstate. But lately I've been trying to leave a little bit earlier and take a little more time and cruise the back roads. Now I will yeah. say this. We've all been spoiled by traveling on the interstates and there's, you know, gas and McDonald's everywhere. When you get off the main highways and you get on two lane roads, you better plan your stops out because <laughs> I went to Torrington, Wyoming a couple weeks ago. That was a nine hour drive. Like I, I saw probably about $53 generals, but like, yeah, I don't think I went past more than a half a dozen gas stations on the way up there. Yeah. It was, was kind of wild. So, yeah, my, uh, I, I was just going to say, like, we would drive from Vail to Lexington, which is about a five-hour drive. But it, it for some reason, it would always take us, like, 12 or 13 hours with my dad when we were young. And then my grandma got sick one time, and she was in Lincoln. And my brother and I drove out there. And we got to Lexington within, like, you know, four hours and 45 minutes or something. And I was like, why in the hell did it, why did it only take that amount of time? And my brother was like, dude, it's because we'd stop at every historical marker and take every small highway. There were some of the highways that I took back and forth to Wyoming. Like there was in Nebraska, they're really good about having historical markers everywhere. And it didn't, I haven't really traveled a whole lot through Nebraska. I'm Kansas, Southern Kansas guy, whatever. Uh, but you know, all the you know historical markers up and down the highways kind of along the Platte River. Like, yeah, if I wasn't trying to get home before two o'clock in the morning, I might stop and read a couple of these and get out, stretch yeah. my legs. But I, I wanted to be home before two o'clock. We yeah. made it, but not much. <laughs> so hella skiing in Alaska. What'd you do after that? Um, well that was, so right before that, uh, I grew up like when I was growing up, I got in just cause my, uh, dad's side of the family was all into rodeo from nebraska okay so we would go out there and start rodeoing and like go to the little like sumner and Ocano and all these little places and rodeo and uh then i started doing little british rodeo and this is leading into that but um uh right after in a high school rodeo and um colorado junior rodeo association all that kind of stuff uh went to tarleton state university down in stephenville texas my freshman year um, to, to try to rodeo, but I got a 0.75 GPA, um, because <laughs> there was too much, too much else, too many extracurricular activities going on down there between, uh, the dance halls and 
jackpots and stuff. So that was short lived. Um, moved back to Colorado, and that's when I just uh, was living in Vail and, and skiing, and uh, and then got into the heli skiing for a while. So I do that in the winter times um, for five five winters, and then in the summer times I'd either work as a land surveyor or help this old guy Maynard Smith um, run his cows way up to this cow camp in the high country, which is really cool. Like they're around Vale. Yeah. So, uh, 30 miles West of Vale, you go to Eagle and then okay. from Eagle, you go up towards, you go South towards Sylvan Lake and up there, there's an area called Lime Park and it's actually right in between, uh, Basalt and Eagle. So you just kind of drop over the backside into Aspen really. And, up there is about 12,000 feet and he ran his whole just kind of commercial herd of cow calf up there um, during the summer. And he lived in a little cow camp up there. Was that and, your first exposure to ranching? No, just cause uh, you know, my grandfather had the ranch and rifle. So we'd go down there and, oh, right. um, and help him out or, I mean, help the, the manager out there. And, uh, and then just working around just some of the small various family ranches that were in gypsum and Eagle growing up. Okay. Yeah. So those were your summers. I was going to ask when you said those are your summers when you're up in Alaska doing heli skiing. So what, what came after that? Let's see after the heli skiing. Um, well, then I came kind of in between there, I came to Montana state. So I moved up here in 2002, uh, to go to college. And, um, and I got, I have like, I've done a lot of random things. So came up here to go to school, started the snow science program. Um, snow science. I, yeah, it's like, like a, no more. Yeah. It's an engineering program. And there's, only there's a university in Switzerland and, and then Montana state has it. And so you basically study the science of snow, like what avalanches and the snow packs and, you know, the grains within the snow and the moisture content and why av- avalanches happen. And, uh, the further I got into it, the more I realized it was basically an engineering degree and that, once you get out of the program, there's like six jobs, you know? So it's like, you can basically become an avalanche forecaster and that there's pretty low demand for those. I imagine. Yeah. So those guys, and they don't let go of their jobs because it's a, it's a good job. Like you get to be outside all winter skiing around you get great benefits, you know, whatever. So, um, I ended up actually, uh, dropping out and starting the, crossfit gym which was the first the second one in montana and first one in bozeman um because it was i it was like more of a means to an end just to be a better athlete for skiing and that that was like the best way to do it okay um or that was the best way that i had found up to that point as far as exercise programs that you know would get you in the best shape for skiing so open that and uh, I only ran that for two years and then ended up selling it because I had met my wife who was living in, in Vail at the time and uh, moved back there for a little bit. 
but she was moving back to Montana because she's she's from Montana and uh, she had started a title company in Western Montana and was moving back to her house that she built. So okay. I told her I was going to tag along, <laughs> and uh, it's kind of unexpected for her, but here we are, fifteen years later, three kids. Okay, I guess that works. Yeah. So that's how you ended up in Montana. Yeah, originally for school. Yep. And then back in Montana because of my wife. And uh, so then from there, we were living in St. Regis, Montana, which is a very, very small, kind of an old, it's a combination of mining and timber in that town. And it was great to live there. It's kind of, it was interesting place. Like a lot of people move there, kind of get off the grid. So not a lot of people like, you know, nobody messed with you. It was like, you just kind of did what you did. You'd go fishing, um, really small, but the schools weren't very good. And, you know, we were like, we can't let our kids go to school here just cause it was just like not a good place to send your kid to school. Um, but I started taking some, uh, well, I went to the horseshoeing school <laughs> in at Montana state again, cause that, I was like, well, you know, it seems like a kind of a good way to segue myself back into the industry. And then after working underneath a few horses for, you know, a few months, I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is the greatest idea. Farrier, farriering horses is a young man's game. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't even know how the young guys do it. My back would just be seized every time after like two horses. Okay. So I have a very, uh, if you look at my career path, it, it's like a kid just took a scribble to a piece of paper. Um, so then. This uh, bloomer just took a while to find what you really wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we had a, we had our son, our first son in 2009. And that's when I realized I wanted to get like more serious about you know, kind of ranching and ranch management. So I ended up going to TCU ranch management program. Um, and that was really cool that, I don't know if you know much about that program, but it's, uh, I fairly, I don't have any firsthand touch points with TCU ranch management. I know quite a few people that have been through the course and I see what they do with their properties. Um, and I've heard, We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I just, you know, I guess for the listeners too, like if they have never heard of it, like it's a lot of number crunching and you're in the classroom from nine to basically four every day. Um, I think it's a total of like 56 credit hours in one year. If you kind of work it out that way. Um, but really the most valuable part of it is uh, going to different operations. And I know just from listening to your podcast um, and I think it was the one with, Oh, but anyway, just like getting another viewpoint from another operation. And uh, you, so you take five week long field trips uh, North Texas, West Texas, East Texas, South Texas, and then one to like the Flint Hills kind of Osage area. And the 
and the producers there will tell you everything that they tell their banker attorneys. So you get to ask them pretty much any question. There's not a, not a whole lot that's off limits. Um, and so that's kind of a real valuable experience, just seeing how they do things, how they operate, listening to mistakes, whatever. Um, but I think really what I got most out of it was just like learning how to like apply myself and think more critically. And that's where I actually ultimately started learning how to use technology. So. Okay. So after TCU, you spent some time in Africa. Yeah. Um, I, well, I, I guess I want to hear about that. Like how, how did that come about? Why did you decide to go to, to Africa? So actually I went twice and, um, and when I was still living here, when I was here in Bozeman, uh, prior to meeting my wife, uh, my buddy and I, so when I lived in Vail, um, prior to moving up to Bozeman, I had lived with five professional kayakers. Okay. Whitewater kayakers and you know, they, okay. You're going this, you're going this direction. I like it. I'm just going to let you run. <laughs> okay. So uh, I moved in with them and, you know, got into the sport of whitewater kayaking just because uh, they just threw me into it. They're like, come on, let's go. And almost drowned a few times and then picked it up. Uh, but they had been to uh, Uganda, Africa, which is, you know, Eastern Africa. Um, and like it right where Lake Victoria is, that's the start of the, the white or the Victoria Nile. Right. And it's a town called Jinja. And so they had told us stories about just this, this water that's massive. It's bigger than the Grand Canyon. It's warm, pretty friendly. And what I mean by that is like the rapids are huge, but at the end of them, it's like a big swimming pool. So you can kind of gather your stuff, get put back together before the next one. Okay. And um, so my buddy Tyler, who actually shares the office next to me here, um, he and I were just sitting around one day and we heard that they were going to build the, the, the Simba power plant. And, you know, we were like, the Nile is going to be damned forever. We should go check it out. And at the time I had a, a sweet truck is like a 24 valve Cummins high output, you know, thing would pass everything, but the gas station. I um, own several I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sold it. And just use the proceeds from that to get our plane ticket and live over there. And it was, you could live. I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention because I was, you know, 25 years old. And, uh, but it was, I mean, less than 20 bucks a day and, you know, to live pretty well. Uh, I mean, I lived 20 years ago, right? Yeah. 20 years ago. Okay. And so I lived in like a one man tent, at the now river explorers camp. And uh, ended up staying, I think, almost a year, just uh, whitewater kayaking and did some volunteer work for this group called Soft Power, which uh, kind of builds schools and, and does uh, malaria education. You spent a year living in a one-man tent in the wilds of, in the bush in Africa, <laughs> yeah. just so you could kayak up and down a river. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I wouldn't say it was the bush, like the, 
you know, it was kind of a terraced area and there's other campers and these big overland buses would come through with all these like crazy Europeans on them. They were actually traveling almost the whole continent of Africa. Um, but then they would stop in and I think they'd been on the road for quite a while. So they were ready to party and, uh, pretty, I mean, you just, we just met so many different people, like Germans and Austrians and Kiwis and, you know, fellow Africans and Canadians. So uh, if, South. if your tent was in one place and you were kayaking down the river, I, I, I'm having trouble imagining a well-developed network of roads through the African <laughs> bush. So there is multiple pickup locations up and down the river, you know, that, and I'm sure that there is, you know, a river Uber you could call to come pick you up in your kayak and take you back to your tent. Right. Yeah. It's the, I mean, I wouldn't say I was going to say established, but there's like a, I mean, there's a lot of villages along the river and uh, just like a, probably one of your better improved roads on the ranch. That's like the quality of the roads there. Um, and then you can either get a Matatu, which is a bus and that you can pack a bunch of people, maybe like 12 people in that. So if you're going kind of a long distance or you can get a Boda Boda, which is basically a scooter. Um, and then you just crawl on the back and you hold your kayak kind of behind you like this and your paddle and then i mean they they go ripping through i mean people are kind of dodging out of the way ripping through brush um you kind of just look straight ahead and not really pay attention to the periphery because there's there look straight cases. ahead hold on to your shit and try not to die yeah because there were times when like right before we got there one of the uh one of the more prominent people that was living there and kind of the videographer guy, he went into Kampala on a boda boda and got hit by a bus and they just threw him in a pickup truck and took him to the hospital. And I mean, there's no, like, there's no real procedure for stabilization, anything like that. So I imagine the ambulance service is a couple hours away if they would even answer the phone. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of just like throw you on a little flatbed and bounce you back into town. <laughs> Hope you survive, I guess. Yeah, so that's why you either, if you had music, you just put your headphones on and kind of just hope for the best. And, and everything worked out good, except I got, I did end up getting some kind of stomach virus that and all I could eat for like three months was... Uh, pineapple and yogurt that doesn't and, sound uh, like any fun no that that part was not fun what was the craziest thing about your living on the year on the white nile um i don't know we uh we took a cool uh tour down to like the rwanda congo region and there's a really cool national park down there called queen elizabeth national park and the ruinzori mountains are there and there's like a glacier up there we never saw the glacier because it was all socked in with clouds but um we were on the aishasha river and across the river is the the congo which is a pretty um wild west place and uh and then rwanda you take was your kayak down right that there. river 
No, we didn't. We didn't kayak down that one. That one was uh, really full of crocus and hippos. So, and it didn't have any white water anyway. But um, that was. It was interesting going through some of those real rural towns. Um, but I think probably, you know, just the craziest part is, oh, I don't know, probably the Europeans that would come through because there were some interesting folks. Okay. What was the food like? The food in Uganda is not too bad. It's like in the morning, you walk out. So the Nile River Explorers is like kind of a camp and you can just walk out to this other little village that was right there. And, um, and I can't remember the kid's name, but he made these chapatis, what they're called. So they're like a tortilla and he makes them in a, like a wok almost. Okay. Gets them real hot and then cracks like an egg and then an avocado throws that in there and that's breakfast or you could do like a Nutella and a banana. So those things are pretty good. And then they have like the most delicious pineapple in the world. You can eat the literally the entire thing except for like the rind. Um, and then their staple really is called posho, which is corn maize. Kind of basically like if you think of grits, but like a cake. Okay. Um, and then red beans. Um, and so if you would go eat like a real traditional meal with a family, they just have a bowl with if you just think of throwing beans and and then they put posho in it and they just pass it around and you just put your hand in it and take some posho and beans and eat it interesting you say that that would be traditional because corn corn originated in mesoamerica and (laughs) if i'm not mistaken so did so did beans like a lot of edible beans and dry beans, yeah. I think they also came from like South America and Mesoamerica. So it's interesting that having a traditional meal in Africa of corn and beans. Yeah, or maybe I should say staple because that's kind of what they ate every day. Well, I mean, it, okay, so it's traditional. How long has yeah. it been their tradition? How long do you need to do something before it is a tradition? Well, yeah, true. 10 years, 20 years. So if they've got a cultural history of you know 250 years of corn and beans and they've got varieties that have been adapted and naturalized to their environment yeah sure traditional yeah yeah and then uh or other times they'd uh they'd kill a chicken so you could get some chicken and then uh pasta it was if you went and had if they like really did it up for you at, at somebody's house you'd have maybe a chicken like one chicken between six or seven people. So there wasn't much protein other than like then the beans, but then they'd have potatoes and then, um, another South American crop. Yeah. (laughs) And then pasta. So a lot of carbs. (laughs) Okay. Um, and then pineapple for dessert. So that was my, that's a long story into my first experience in Africa leading into TCU that's with TCU. I went back to Ghana, which is in Western Africa to help um, at the time. And I don't really know if it's going on anymore, but they, they formed this thing called the Institute of Ranch Management, which started in Panama. And uh, they went down because there was some 
producers that went to school at TCU and went back to Panama and kind of started applying some of the principles there, just like building cattle budgets and stuff like that um, with their local kind of farmer ranch ranchers there. And so the TCU started the Institute of Ranch Management and then the Ghanaian government reached out to TCU because at the time um, Ghana was really trying to invest in their economy and they have offshore oil. And uh, so they're a fairly wealthy nation. And um, then they had tax-free imports on agricultural goods. And then in kind of going back to the seventies, the Italians started a, a ranch there. They call it just a, you know, a cattle farm there, but um as basically a demonstration ranch for the Ghanaian people in the Volta region, which is in Eastern Ghana, kind of along the Volta river, which is a huge river, okay. like 250,000 CFS type of, it's a lot of water moving through there. Um, and so the Italians built this, it was a, it was a pretty sophisticated operation, it had some like dipping vats, um, both that you would drive through and for the cattle um you know all the modern stuff for the 70s and um and then i think when the euro formed it collapsed the what is that the lira italian lira yes and so uh italy withdrew all of their work there and the the aveme cattle station kind of sat dormant for ever until we went there and they just had like some kind of some tenants that were living on it, running some cattle. And uh, so my, I went there with one of the professors and another guy who ranches down in Victoria, Texas. And we did our initial research. And we were only there for a month that time. And then later on, my brother and I went back for three months and uh, like took a full inventory of the, of the property and then kind of worked our way basically from the smallest producer, just interviewing them to like the abattoirs and then all the way up to like the move and pick hotel, which is like a five-star hotel right in the craw in cause they sell like burger that they purchase from the region, but they purchase, they purchase most of their burger from South Africa. So they wanted to try to, you know, raise their own beef and, and it seemed like it would, was going to be a great deal because the Ghanaian government was basically like, yep, you can do what you need to do to get this built. We'll help you build infrastructure. There's cell coverage everywhere. So communication is easy. We're interested in building like storage for, you know, grain or whatever, if they wanted to do that, there was available water for irrigation. It's kind of the sky was the limit. Um, and then I think just the bureaucracy between you know, TCU and the government just never, never materialized. And, and we never really heard anything more about it after we came back. Well, I mean, we delivered our, kind of delivered our plan and then that was it. I was going to ask as a follow-up, did it, did they ever develop their industry or ever do anything with it? I don't, they never, they didn't develop that into a beef cattle operation, but I, as far as I know, I've heard it's rice now. Um, and I don't know who developed that. It was pretty big. It was 25,000 hectares. Um, what is know, I can't acres for everybody else? Let's see. 
I'm going to have to look that up, but it's a, it's, I think it's like 14,000 acres or something. Ought to be, ought to be pretty, uh, ought to be a big enough area to run some cows on, be able to grow some grass. You'd think. Well, yeah. And so I don't know if you've been to, oh, well, no, that's 61,000 acres. I was going to say, I thought every hectare was like three something. Yeah. Yeah. 61,000 acres. That's a, you know, that's a big place. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you King ranch size. Yeah. I don't know if you've (laughs) been to South Texas, but if you're in the, on the Accra Plains, if there's somebody blindfolded you and put you on the Accra Plains or in South Texas, you would not know where the difference it looks, they look identical. Okay. So kind of tall grass prairies. And you said you were over by the Volta river. Is that kind of the Accra Plains? That's part of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get it. I get it. So you, so you did your time in Ghana. Now we're back in Bozeman. (laughs) Back in Bozeman. How did, how did you get hooked up uh, with your employer running cows up in the mountains? So I got hooked up with this place because um, three years ago, we had a huge forest fire come through that started out as just a, it, it was a lightning strike that was, that was burning inside of a hollow tree for about a week. And then the conditions got real dry and hot and just one tree went up in flames on this real popular hiking area called the M. And I don't know why they didn't put it out then. Cause it was literally just one single tree that was on fire. And I guess, you know, didn't seem threatening at all. And then that evening, it kind of grew a little bit. um, And then it kind of exploded the next day and it went over into Bridger Canyon where, where we live. And then that day it was, I don't know, I think 85 or 90 degrees. And then the winds picked up to like 45 or 50 miles an hour. You're going to have a bad day. Yeah. And so the fire moved. I think 13 miles in less than 40 minutes up the Canyon. And I was at home working cause I was just at the time I was working from home and uh, I ran down to the, to the ranch headquarters and I, you know, I knew that they had cattle there. So I just pulled in and uh, manager Mike, I was like, Hey man, I know how to ride a horse and move cows. If you need help getting them out of here, um, fire looks like it's coming this way. And he's like, well, no, we, uh, I got some help coming, but then they shut the Canyon down. So nobody could get there. So he called me back up and we ended up getting about, I think like 65 yearlings out of this Pine Creek area that the fire came blazing right through and got them put out into a hay field and, and everything survived. Um, but then the next summer he asked if I just wanted to come help him out and it's, it's a, I love, you know, I like, I love being in the industry, right? I only get paid 18 bucks an hour, <laughs> which. I, I think if some of us were honest about our books, we are paying $18 an hour to go to work. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you might be a little bit ahead on that column. <laughs> but, you know, it's like a great, like keeps me involved in the industry. Um, you know, it, it keeps me outside. Cause otherwise I'd just basically be a slave to my desk. Um, and agriculture is really my true passion. I mean, I love building websites and technology and stuff, but 
agriculture is really what I love to do. Still skiing? Yeah, I still ski. We actually live at Bridger Bowl. We, we got really lucky and found a house um, right at the base of the ski hill way before the the craze happened. And it was kind of a rundown little cabin. It was shrouded in trees and kind of an unassuming little place. We got a really good deal on it. And, uh, and now it's, uh, you know, it's right at the ski hill so we can go out the door and get a few laps in at lunch and then get back home. You just like jump on your snow machine and run to the top of the hill and ski down. You can actually just walk out and put your skis on and go down to the chair. Oh, and, and then, then there's a chair that brings you back up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Bridger bowl is right there. So they have, uh, I think seven chairs. Well, like 2,700 acres or something. So from a chair, can you ride a chair up and then ski right back down to your house? Yeah. That's legit. <laughs> That's legit. And that, like, that we, you know, like, people think of that and they're like, oh, man, these guys are, like, loaded. But no, we found this place. had a, It's, like, a 1,000 square feet. It has one bathroom. Um, it was That's built perfect. in 19... 19- 76 we and we have three kids the dog so where it's cozy probably a little snug but what so i gotta ask like i listen another podcast i listen to is up around whitefish and he's been talking off and on for the last year about all the people moving in you mentioned it earlier in your area how uh well i guess before we get into that uh, just down in Wyoming, like around Jackson Hole. I've heard that real estate prices in Jackson Hole, like median home price now is over a million dollars in Jackson Hole. And there's people bet, like that have had their rent doubled this yeah, in the I, last 12 months. Yeah, it's a real issue because, you know, there's like not, I mean, any working class normal person has a really t- hard time living at any of these resort towns anymore. Like nobody can, I could never go home to Vail and move back there if I wanted to. Um, I could never afford a house here now if I wanted to. We got lucky and got in before everything took off. Um, and the median home price here in Bozeman is like $820,000. Yeah. And then if you go to Big Sky, the median single family home price there is $3.5 million. So I bet you in Jackson Hole, it's more like five or six because it's crazy. And then Aspen, I think, is, I think, five. How fast are they building houses around Bozeman or and or how fast are properties turning over? Um, so in terms of the real estate market, I think it's slowed down quite a bit just because of the interest rates and all that stuff. But the development is still just... I mean, full bore ahead, it seems like. Like there, if you go east, I mean, west of town, that's where the majority of the development can happen because that's all farmland out there. Um, every, I mean, town used to end kind of just past 7th Street and 19th. Um, 19th was getting fairly developed when I first moved here. And then um, now you go way past that and it's just, like housing development after housing development after housing development. 
I think that's one of the interesting things about, you know, when you do get a little bit, when you get a couple of gray hairs in your beard, maybe a couple above the ears, and you go back to some places that you, you know, became familiar with as a young man or young adult. And then we go back and we look at them. It's like, wow, town used to end here. And now there's yeah. five miles of it. And then you go to another, then you go to a small town and you're like, well, I remember when that was, uh, remember when that was a Dylan's. Remember when we had a Safeway and an Alco and, you know, 16 yeah. stores and half a main streets boarded up that used to not be. And it's kind of like, dang, what happened to this town? And then you get just on the outside of town and you see that freaking yellow sign that says Dollar General. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's perfect example of like Lexington where my dad grew up. You know, it was a, I don't know what the population was before IBP moved in, but then IBP moved in, Iowa Beef Packers, which is now Tyson, right? Yeah. Um, and the town doubled in population then. And then it, there used to be like a Pomida. And then, you know, all Main Street was a vibrant little Main Street. And we went back there but last summer for my uncle's funeral and you know like just like you said half of main street has the windows are boarded up and the old places that we used to go to for lunch or dinner are not there and it's just like a super walmart my wife and i were driving yesterday and made this observation you're driving through driving through a town that is seen more prosperous days and this wide four lane street you know and it was kind of like an old industrial commercial part of town and let's say maybe well, I mean, there, there are vacant lots and there's a lot of vacant buildings okay and you know you drive around enough you kind of get a sense of you know when everything was built like you know that late 50s cinder block building style with flat roofs yeah. and big windows that's what this whole place that's that's what this whole street is lined with on both sides and three quarters of them are abandoned and the yeah. ones that aren't are like they're on their third business it's like the third business to be there and try to make a go in that location and then the other side of town is completely you know that's where they're building everything the north east, the north and north side and east side is where every town seems to be growing that has room to grow that way just just an idle observation that uh, you know the increasing land costs with you know in resort towns that's just another symptom a symptom of kind of an overall sickness in the economy and a disparity between productivity of land and what it's valued at and what people will actually pay for it it's you know, I, I, you can see two sides of the coin I can see two sides of the coin like if somebody came to me and was like hey town's coming this way we want to carve off like a hundred acres right here along the highway and plat it for houses would you sell it to us you don't for what they're going to be starting to offer on a per acre price it'd be a pretty tempting deal like even to get in on as a partner and be like okay you don't buy it from me i'm in as a partner and as you right. sell these you get this percentage i get this percentage and as they you know demand goes up you start getting more and more money for the more desirable stuff. Well, that's a win for you. And maybe, you know, as a rancher and it helps keep that rancher 
maybe it's helping him provide cash flow to secure the land some other way or secure the rest of the land for another generation. Like a lot of guys are also just cashing out too. Yeah. And you know, that that's perfectly reasonable, but where it's all leading us. And this is something I've really been thinking about the last couple of weeks is we're, we're down, the, we're so far down this road of a culture of tenant farmers and ranchers. There's very, very few owner operators left. Like I've, I've kind of been looking and, you know, I know several, but we're the minority of people that are in my contacts book. And yeah, I, I, I don't know how we missed it. <laughs> I, I, we were sleeping, we were distracted, worried about other stuff. And now we turn around and there's no owner operators left. Um, I was talking to my county commissioner, one of my county commissioners last week. And he said that over 40% of the land base in our county is owned by out-of-state hunters. Not, not people, not out-of-state or out-of-area ranches. Just 40% of the land was owned by out-of-state hunters. Yeah, just as a hunting property. Yeah. Yeah. Do they do they pay a manager or something to manage that land or do they you know the way I'm going to translate and answer that question. <laughs> they pay somebody to go out and put in food plots, put up game cameras and fill their corn feeders. Yeah. That's that's now I'm painting things with a very, very broad brush here, sure. but in my experience, that's what our out of state deer hunter landowner neighbors do. They generally don't maintain their fences because, well, they don't have cows. So why should they worry about their fence? They don't graze their grass. They let invasive cedar trees clog it up. And they, they, and they also raise everybody's tax tax basis, right? Because yeah. every time these deer hunters decide they're going to trade one of their hunting properties, it raises my tax basis because there's not a separate recreational tax, recreational land use tax classification in Kansas. Yeah. You know, that's. So th th there was a property in between where I live and my ranch. That's about uh, four miles away from four miles away from where I'm sitting and probably four miles, four to five miles away from my closest fence line. Now, th this piece of property hasn't had a cow on it as long as I've known it. At least 15 years, it hasn't had a cow on it. It hasn't had, it missed the big fire in 2016. So the Anderson Creek wildfire, this was just on the outside of it. So it hasn't been burned since probably the last giant wildfire that came through this area was in the 60s. So that would have been the last time it could have possibly burned was in the 60s. Wow. It traded for, uh, let's see, it traded for double what the last piece of pasture ground traded for in this country. And then like, this, the, the pasture was about 10 miles away from, from this property I'm talking about. And it just traded a couple months ago on the, this deer hunter property it traded, uh, back in the spring, but they paid more than double, almost, almost three times what that, what the pasture ground traded for just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, 
and I, I look at that. I just think, you know, like this is somebody, these are people that are coming from, you know, Louisiana and Florida and they're looking at their land price and they're like, yeah, that's pretty good. And they come out here, they hunt deer for a couple of years and they flip it to make money on it and get their investment back just raises my taxes and they're yeah. not, they're not necessarily good neighbors. And it bothers me when you go to town and people are like, well, they bring in a lot of money, to the local economy, they bring in a lot of local money, to the local economy. Well, um, our packing, our brand new packing plant brings in four jobs. It brings in the opportunity for me to spend more money in this community for me to like produce product in this community that's generate wealth in this community versus exporting it. Mm-hmm. That was a different rabbit trail. Wow. <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah, you for know, sure. It, it's like, I guess the, the other, the, where I want to take this is, you know, city managers will look at Walmart. Walmart will say, we want to build a new ultra Walmart in your town. And city managers will fall all over themselves, be like, well, we'll give you a four-lane road right into that sucker. We'll give you your own stoplight timed. Yep. We'll run the utilities for you and give you 20 years off your taxes. Mm-hmm. Just build your Walmart in our town. But tell them you but go to your city council and say, I want to open a small meat packing plant that's going to bring five jobs to the community. They will they yeah. they fought my friend the whole way yeah I mean, uh, maybe that's not fair it took two years it took two years from the first time he went to the city council to actually have a building built it should be quicker than that it should be easier than that but there's just there's so many roadblocks towards you know small business or independent business trying to do something in a community because the community leaders they're like why should we waste 10 hours working on your project when we can spend 20 hours working on the Walmart project, which is going to bring in more benefit to the community. Yeah. But then what I've seen, you know, like the, there's been a super Walmart built in my hometown where I grew up and then my dad's hometown and it has just long-term negative effects. Right. It's hard, but then also, you know, I listened to that, uh, the podcast with Logan Mm -hmm. and, um, how it said that, you know, the dollar general or whatever came in and the local businesses, the local grocer was worried that they were going to lose 20% of their business right off the top. But then he ended up kind of retaining the higher value customers. Right. And so now you can get like, he can get his kombucha and better produce and stuff like that. So I don't, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that's like a net positive, but you know, I, I guess that's, that could be one way to look at, you know, dollar general. We just, our local grocery store several years ago, they built a new, they built a new store and it's awesome. Like, I mean, we're, it's awesome. We're glad to have it in town. They're a little higher. I mean, they're higher than Dylan's. They're higher than Walmart. We still try to shop there because they're local. Dollar general opened up right now in the street. And then, I don't know, last year on the other end of town, well, the other end of town being a mile away on the other end of the street, there's a family dollar, dollar tree or whatever, you know, whatever those two combinations are. So we not only have a 
Dollar General that's selling, you know, all the processed packaged crap. We've got two other stores in town that sell <laughs> that sell the Chinese rejects. My friend Mike Calicrate, I when he says that Walmart killed Main Street and Dollar General comes in to pick the carcass clean, gosh, the the more I look at what's happened to our rural towns, the more I see that's true. Yeah. Yeah, and just like you've discussed in the past, they're like a food desert. Um, and the irony of we we feed the world, um, you know, yeah, you go to basically any small town in rural America and you can't get a, a decent vegetable, you know. Definitely not at Dollar General. Our grocery store is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a problem. And hopefully it's one that, you know, we'll find some solutions on and people will start working on. But, um, so back to kind of the conversation about, you know, the, the deer hunting or recreational property. You know, similar to what you guys deal with up there in the mountains on federal lands, like log it, graze it, or watch it burn. It's the same thing here on the plains. I mean, where I'm at right now, headspace wise, is I feel really good about the amount of forage we've grown this year. I feel great about it. I'm also really terrified of the amount of forage that we've grown this year. Yeah. Because we've we're about ready to hit the winter drought. And it's going to be a long time till we get green grass again. And there's going to be a lot of brown stuff that'll burn really well for a lot of months between now and then. So sure. I'm a little concerned about wildfires. Um, I'm going to be out over the next couple of months mowing fire guards. Not necessarily because I'm worried about a wildfire, but because I'm planning on burning. Like, yeah, I'm not committed yet. Not 100% committed yet to burning. I'll say that on the podcast, but you know, like in my head, we're going to light a bunch of stuff on fire next year. It'll reduce the fuel load a little bit, but it'll also really stimulate next year's grass production. So yeah. that's what I'm excited about with the, and hopefully I'll be able to kill a few trees, clean up some new ones that have come since, since the last wildfire. Um, this is a totally different context though. The forest in the mountain West. Okay. Like the one, like the fire that you were talking about, lightning started that fire. Lightning would start that fire, whether or not you or I were here. The question is, what has, would it have been less severe if we hadn't been managing the forest in the West for the last hundred years like we have, or let's just say 200, or would it have been, no, forget that, because uh, I don't, that didn't even make sense. Didn't even no, make I think sense it, I think it does make sense because, um, you know, there's been a lot of mismanagement of the forest up here, right? Um, I, I mean, I would, you know, there's always been grazing and logging, but if it's on public lands, the logging is a very bureaucratic process and hard to get established. It has to go through a lot of committees and comment periods and all sorts of stuff. So the privately managed lands you see are managed much better than the public. And this fire burned a lot of public land which was um which is 
there's a lot of overgrown forest in the canyon up there until you hit basically the ranch. Um, and so Which the privately managed, privately managed. Yeah. So the operation that I work for um, originally started out as 7,000 acres. And then uh, the, the, a new owner took over four or five years ago. And, no, seven years ago. And then four or five years ago, they purchased 19 additional thousand acres of ROI timberland, which had been primarily logged, but then also grazed. Um, but not, I wouldn't say grazed in a an exceptional manner, right? It's it, it's very understocked, probably overutilized, like the cattle overgraze certain portions of it really hard. Um, That'll happen but, when you set stock of pasture. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, uh, but still it's, there's much less deadfall in those forests compared to what the kind of the public forest, the, it's all BLM or forest service kind of around that. Um, and there, there has been quite a few logging projects in the bridgers just to mainly reduce spruce budworm, which is a, a bad, you know, insect that's killing a lot of the spruce trees around here, but. So they've made kind of an effort to get rid of those. And there has been grazing throughout. But still, I would say, um, you know, you can look to some of the forests in Colorado where I'm from. And the, I mean, it's just a matchbox. Like, and I'm surprised it hasn't burnt yet. Like the lodgepole forests are so overgrown and thick. Um, but yeah, I think. I didn't get there this year, but the last couple of years, I've spent some time out in uh, central and southwest Colorado, like the San Juans and yeah. towards Loveland, um, jeeping up in the mountains and just the vast, vast tracks of beetle kill. I look yeah. at that and go, oh, man, I wouldn't even want to walk through there with a lit cigarette. Well, you would know the area that I'm talking about. Like when you come in into like Silverthorne area before heading down to Breck, it's up to the north there. Yep. Uh, there's like Buffalo mountain, but then you go North into Granby and Grand Lake and all that in that area. If you fly over that with a plane, it's the whole forest is basically dead just with beetle kill. And I, you know, I don't, I could be a scientist that I was talking to one day. Um, he said that those lodgepole forests typically go in like 140 year fire cycles, but they haven't hit one of those 140 year fire cycles you know so that would typically be what cleans it up um and just, you know it's you know just like anything we spend billions of dollars on fighting the symptoms but not the problem when we could go you know yeah we could spend billions and billions or we could make a little bit letting people log it maybe even do some strategic logging to make fire breaks around stuff yeah but it, there was people calling for more government control of land and more government control of agriculture don't understand what, what BLM lands are like, what lands are like in the Western U.S. and how poorly managed they are. Well, or how big they are, really, right? Right. There's just so much land. It's not... Well, I was actually thinking about you know doing this for... Mainly, you know, I mainly just use Instagram as kind of a my outlet. Right. But I, I talked about a section of the ranch the other day that's real overgrown. And it's, you know, it's not feasible to mechanically clear that. Right. So 
and that's just that's just like 10 acres right there so i don't you know i don't think people have a grasp on the size and scope of the lands around here and then if you were to say okay we'll let we'll let the government control this and but then what does that do that shifts the the burden to us as taxpayers to pay for that and then how is it even going to get managed because it's going to take such a long time to create a management plan and go through the bureaucracy of cleaning that up that it's going to be years and years down the road um a lot of litigation i would imagine can't imagine any environmental groups have anything to say about federal lands (laughs) yeah so you know and then uh i i was kind of thinking about just kind of going back to your topic about the landowners purchasing the hunting lands and it's not always the case here but there are i am seeing a trend in the the western region here where people are buying ranches and they realize they don't want to just throw cash at it right so they do want it to like operational operationally cash flow and they do realize that or i think they're starting to realize that livestock in some form of grazing and timber management is a good way to generate income and, and not just throw money at the place and also keep it healthy. Um, so there are large ranches around here that have been bought and sold that are going through those processes, but it's at the same time, it's not helping the generational rancher, right? Because the property taxes, once it's flipped are going up again because the value of the land is going up. Um, and so, yeah, the the generational owner around here is becoming few and far between. And more of a transition towards tenant farmers and tenant ranchers managing for an absentee landowner or even, even a present landowner. Yeah. But just having ownership and management disconnected and on different levels living in different houses, it makes it difficult to have, you know, for meaningful change unless there's a lot of really open and honest communication about what yeah. ownership's goals are, what management needs are to accomplish those goals. Yeah. And then also it's, you know, it's, uh, if you, if you are, let's say come from a blue collar background of ranching, even if you've been like, basically if your father was the manager of a place didn't own it, um, And then there is still, it's hard to describe, but there is a disconnect between someone who's like a billionaire that can just purchase a ranch and you as a person who knows the area, knows the land, kind of has grown up in that. It's hard to like describe the disconnect, but there is definitely like a, there's a rift in like the, communication right not always and i'm generalizing but it seems like there is some kind of out of out of touch i you know somebody who is like one of these newly formed ranchers that has come out here and was like well i want to buy a ranch that they just i don't know how to say this without like being sounding kind of offensive but Watch too much um, Yellowstone. Yeah. You know, it's just like there is a weird 
difference in communication just in the way that you see things, the way, um, and I'm not saying that if you grew up ranching all that, that you just are, um, the, like are a step ahead, but, um, you know, I, I guess I'm saying like the old time people that I know that owned large ranches seemed very down to earth and lived quite humbly. Uh, like the old manager that had the place that I work on now, they had a very small house, very humble beginnings. His kids worked the land. You know, they, the manager was instructed not to give them any slack, like treat them just like employees. And it doesn't seem like that's quite the same with most of these people that are buying ranches now. Okay. Just, just thinking about that for a minute and, you know, I can have anything relatable and it does the properties that trade around here just seem to trade to deer hunters and Uh it'd be, Maybe it, that might be a nice change to have a new neighbor that wants to be a rancher instead of somebody that's just going to come out here and hunt deer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I was also thinking like, you know, there's a, in rural America, there's, we were talking about how, you know, towns are kind of dilapidated and stuff, but do you also see like an opportunity for, you know, younger people to like move back there and start businesses and, Yes, but I can't really, I can't put my finger on anything specific. Okay. And I I think that burden is, is on us. Yeah. You know, as, as middle-aged men and the older generation, the burden is on us to help create opportunities and help support younger folks that want to come out to small towns and do manufacturing or do value add or get into agriculture or, or have some sort of business that's going to add value to the community. We've had too much of a brain drain, too much of a labor drain with too much of our talent going to town for too long. And, you know, that's a consequence of get bigger, get out. I think, I think that's 100% consequence of get bigger, get out. I would also say too, you know, that agriculture hasn't done itself any favors by, you know, like the old, old generation just kind of, you know, were some of them quite a, quite a few of them were very difficult to work for and not a lot of days off and, you know, kind of always telling the narrative of like, well, this is the lifestyle, but you're not going to make any money. And it's, you know, it hasn't been very appealing for a lot of people to be like, why, why should I continue that? And there was a whole generation, which we're part of, that was told, you've got to go to college. you got to go to college. you got to have a degree. you got to do something with your life. Yeah. I never did. Maybe that explains why I am where I am, but that's another story. And, you know, then that morphed into, well, we'll just pay for college for everybody. We want everybody mm-hmm. to have a degree. We'll just, we'll just make sure everybody can get college loans. We'll just pay for everybody to go to college. Now we've got federal-backed student loans for everybody. Um, 15, 20 years down the line, where do we end up? We got a student debt crisis where people are screaming for their student debts to be forgiven because a, they didn't really read the contract when they signed up. They weren't responsible with how much they borrowed. And now they're in a position that they can't afford to pay back a loan. They took out like, I'm sorry, that's not my problem. That's this legitimately not my problem as a U.S. taxpayer. Yeah. We shouldn't have been in that position, but we, First, we decided that we were going to we we're going to tell everybody they had to have a college degree, and then we made it 
so everybody could go to college, which is great. And then we made so the government will back behind everybody's loan, not pay for everybody to go to college. The government's going to guarantee that load will get paid back. Natural thing for do to, for colleges to do is do what? Jack tuition. Mm-hmm. I mean, tuition is compared to the cost of living 20 years ago when you and I would have been college age. Cost of tuition compared to the cost of living has gone up way faster, like stratospheric. It's skateboard ramp looking. Yeah. Just insane. And we ended up with like, I, I, I just have a hard time as a taxpayer thinking that, you know, that some of my tax dollars are going to go to pay for someone's liberal arts degree that cost them $120,000 and they can't pay it off because they're working at McDonald's and demanding $25 an hour. Mm. We've got way too many people that are in that position. And I don't know how we unwind it. Yeah. I don't either. (laughs) I don't know, but how do we get more people to come back to rural America? You know, like electricians, plumbers, Welders. I mean, we need all of those people, all of those people to, to keep society running. How much longer are we going to need a liberal arts major or an artificial intelligence prompt engineer? Like how many more years are those jobs going to be necessary? Um, I can guarantee you that a guy that can stick two pieces of metal together is going to be in demand for a long time. A guy that knows how to bite wires and stick them together and make the electrons do the right thing. That guy's going to be in demand for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of technology, I don't know if, uh, you researched this, but I tried to develop a mobile cattle marketing app at one point. Okay. (laughs) I did. I actually didn't come across that in my, in my research this morning. Yeah. Um, well, it started as a, so I have a good friend who runs the, who owns and runs the IX ranch in big Sandy, Montana. Okay. Rich Ross, and he's a cool guy. Um, and after TCU, when I was at TCU, I like that's where I learned how to use Excel. And so then we created a management plan, and I did one on a ranch up here in Montana, um, just basically a business plan for your ranch, you know. Um, but I, what we would do is run all these spreadsheets and create all these like cattle budgets and kind of crop budgets and whatever, but then print them off and put them in a notebook. And so that seemed pretty silly to me. I'm like, why do we print the numbers out of a spreadsheet and put it into a notebook? That's just like counterintuitive, right? Right. So I was like, (laughs) and this is like, because grazing records are hard. (laughs) But at the time, you know, this is like when cloud computing was kind of a hot topic. And so I was like, well, why can't I create, uh, online version of this where you can just go and like keep your numbers live and kind of keep a, a working plan online. Um, so Rich and I, uh, Rich actually had a family member that went to MIT and then came back to the ranch and it's a sizable ranch. They run about 4,500 mother cows. I need to take a real quick break. Okay. Be right back. Sorry about that. We're back. No worries. Um, so you're, you're saying uh, your software, your friend MIT. 
Yeah, so I was talking about Rich and the uh, IX Ranch and the MIT graduate came back to the ranch. Um, and I was saying it's a sizable operation. It's like 4,500 mother cows on the, you know, roughly 130,000 acres or so. Um, but he was just like, well, cows are widgets that eat grass and they're confined to a pasture that has a measurable amount of grass in it. And he built a, a pretty cool software for the, for the time. Um, and so Rich and I tried to upgrade it and that's just how I, I learned design because I taught myself illustrator, uh, Adobe illustrator. And so I did like the mock-ups for what the, what a web-based platform would look like. And, um, then tried to hire an engineer to help us build it. Um, it, how you much know, fun out, was it trying to get the engineer to speak the language of livestock? You know, once we once he figured out that like the consumption and kind of the production forage and all that stuff it, it like kind of turned it into math um but they're uh really what was the biggest pre, you know prohibitor at the time is that you know nowadays there's like the no code revolution where there's a lot of software that does really really cool things without writing code but at the time that, that was kind of just taken off yeah, it doesn't, but it's, it's cool. You know, I mean, we can talk about that after this part, but, um, you know, at the time you, you had to write the entire application through with, you know, using a programming language, um, like jQuery or Python or something like that. So, but it was like cost prohibitive at the time because we estimated it to be roughly $350,000 to make this software. And so, there's not a rancher in the world that was going to say, sure, I'll give you that money because they didn't find a lot of value in it. Right. Right. And there wasn't a venture capitalist that understood ranching well enough to be like, Oh yeah, I see that your value proposition is worth it. So why do I need to pay you $350,000 to build this? I can just go buy legal pads and little red books. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the standpoint from the rancher. Right. Um, and, and I, didn't communicate the value proposition well enough. And I still don't know if I could um, about why it's cool to have data. I personally think it's cool to ha like have data and you like see it over time, but you know, I'm a very small, I'm not, I'm not a big enough. There's not enough people like me to make it worthwhile. Right. And it, that might be now because there's softwares like AgroWeb and stuff that have come out that seem to be doing pretty well. I don't know. Pasture map. There's, uh, I mean, my grazing is pretty good. Uh, yeah. You know, cattle, cattle max does some different stuff. There's a 701 X. They've got some pretty good software too. So yeah. they're, they're out there. So kind of like you, I had an idea and this, this was in 2008 and like had these little Dell kind of Palm pilot pocket computer things. I mean, it's yeah. pre iPhone. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I remember those and you could write on them. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you could put Excel on them. Yeah. So I started taking dad's grazing records and grazing charts that he'd been using and trying to make an Excel spreadsheet and then trying to figure out how to write the formula to put the formula in the Excel spreadsheet so I could get actionable information back out. That was a little bit beyond me, but I, I did spend like, I, I filled out, I just, 
kept writing and writing my ideas down on, you know, how, how things should work and why I would want things and two notebooks and just kind of threw it over on the shelf. Um, but yeah, like being able to have data in your fingertips, like for me, knowing what my forage inventory is, my move records, I keep all that stuff in pasture map and it's great. Yeah. And it's map based, which is like, that appeals to me because I'm a visual person. I like maps. You show me on a map, you give me a data, you give me data in a graph or on a map. Like I can get that. You show me a spreadsheet and I'm, I'll still figure it out. I'm just going to have to stare at it for a while before I figure out what's what and get the numbers and information out of it. But, you know, I, I was involved with pasture map with Christine Suet pasture map, helping build. Yeah, it's just, I was just going to say we, cause I'd met Christine cause we were kind of working in at the, you know, we were building this at the same time, right? but she, she had, you know, obviously, um, uh, came from Stanford and, you know, had some more development resources at her fingertips and. Yep. Yep. I think that that's what, that's what made it successful is she had some venture capital that, that, you know, that she could sell it to that helped her build the app. And I'm, yeah. It's a good app. I still use it every day. And now it's a San Antonio based group, right? That owns it or that runs it. Yes. There it's part of, uh, I think it's scale works or soil works uh-huh. now, which is yeah, under the same works. umbrella as, as range ward and grassroots mm-hmm. carbon and, uh, power flex fence. I think they own that too now. Okay. No, I'm just waiting for them to buy an energizer company. Then I just make one phone call and get all my <laughs> crap. <laughs> Not really, but. Yeah, so that, um, well, I, we got into that, but I think this was, I was trying to segue into like the mobile app that I, that we did kind of, de- we developed it. Um, and I came up with this idea because I was uh, living on a ranch in Stevensville, Montana. And the owner would sell his cattle to a farmer feeder out in Iowa every year. Um, and then, you know, one day I was out there and I was like, hey, Dick, why don't I, you know, I have a, a phone in my pocket and I have all the health records and whatever on a spreadsheet in my phone that's in a, dr- a Google Drive folder. I was like, I'll just take a video of these cattle and it's we can kind of use it like a simple, I mean, a, a, a superior livestock kind of set up and just send this to the to Joe. Right. And uh, we did that. And, you know, Joe was like, wow, this is cool. You know, I get to see a video of the cattle. I get to get some data. And uh, he's like, that'd be kind of cool to have a technology like this. So we, you know, made the software where you could take some pictures. You could, it didn't have video capability, but it, like, if you look at a superior on the website, like a, a lot, and you see the kind, the class, where they're located, what the shrink is, you know, the, all that. Yeah, you'd fill in that form and then post it to like a marketplace. And it, I mean, it got some traction, but, you know, really what we underestimated is just the value of the representative out there because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, I I guess I'd say shady players out there that are trying to trade cattle. Um, Is this business? No, never. (laughs) So, you know, it never, that didn't really take off. And then my, our developer got a, a job that 10 X his salary elsewhere. So of course we're like, well, yeah, you should take that. But 
It's and complicated. I've, yeah, it's complicated. And, you know, I've been trying to think about ways to incorporate technology into the ranching industry ever since. And it's always on top of my mind, but. I'm all in favor of incorporating technology as long as we maintain our basic husbandry skills, which I think in the well, industry have been lost by and large. And do you get what I'm, I'll, I'll let you talk. No, I get, to, I totally get what you're saying. And also don't just create technology for the sake of creating technology, right? Like if there's actually a real problem that could be solved that provides value to many, many ranchers, then I think it'd be worthwhile to pursue, but I haven't really, haven't really found that yet. So example of technology that comes to mind would be virtual fence collars or yeah. uh, tracking ear tags, not necessarily to control movement, but just to you know know where they're at and then have a heart and have a health heartbeat. Right. Yep. For me, those don't make sense. I mean, I could maybe justify the location tag and heartbeat so I could get a grazing heat map data. Yeah. That would be like, show me a grazing heat map of how my pasture was grazed. Please. I want that information. Like, yes, that would be good stuff. Um, but like, as far as having a virtual fence collar for me, that doesn't make sense. I can't like, I can't noodle that from a cost benefit standpoint. I can accomplish that objective a lot a lot cheaper and easier with poly wire or with, with semi-permanent electric fence. Yeah. For see, you. I think, but for somebody for, up in the mountains, yeah, definitely see a use case for callers. Go ahead. I was just going to say that because, you know, just the terrain and the challenge of building fence or even putting up poly wire, whatever makes it difficult. And I hope that, I get it, you know, stay on this place long enough to like implement some of that stuff or at least experiment with it. Um, you know, because I, I do think there's some cool opportunities that could be had there because, you know, the owner has um, obviously the pocketbooks that if he wanted to kind of experiment with some of that stuff and, and I justified like why I think it'd be worthwhile. I think he'd be interested in, and putting some money towards it. Um, and, and also I think he is interested in maintaining the operation as a ranch for the long term too. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, I would love to be able to try to do some like real high intensity or management intensity grazing in like forested areas and use like a combination of like, okay, what would happen if we logged this and then, and then grazed it right after that. And then, you know, did some cool management stuff along those terms and see what the results are um, in terms of kind of, you know, weed mitigation and forage production. Yeah, for sure. And I know I'm all over the place, but so the place you're on compared to the public land across the fence line. Okay. Yeah. I, I kind of have a picture in my head that the place you work for looks more like silo pasture. I mean, there's big trees, but there's space in between. There was you know, probably some forage on the, on the ground. The other side of the fence 
will have the same big trees, twice the number of small trees, and four times the number of baby trees, and no forage on the forest floor. Yeah, it's a pretty good assumption. Um, there are there are areas next to the ranch that have had logging projects happen within the last forty years, so they're a little better shape. Um, but then there's also places that haven't that have been kind of untouched and they look just like that or uh, like dense lodge pole stands with a lot of deadfall that, I mean, it looks like you took a bunch of matches and just dropped them. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's what that looks like. What's the logging like? Is it like clear cut or is it selective, selective falling and, and thinning? Uh, all of that stuff in the Canyon there has all been like selective logging. So, so they just have big naked blocks on the mountain. There are, there are, a f there are very few patches of just big naked blocks and most of it has been selective log. So there are, you know, the, like it's a dug for, for like evergreen forest, but there's uh, pr predominantly dug firs. And so those are big up to, I think they, around here, they get up to like almost 200 feet tall. Um, the big ones do not all there's not that many of those, but uh, you know, in those areas that have been selectively logged, it's pretty wide open. There's a pretty good amount of grass that grows underneath them. Um, and then there's also some decent size Aspen stands and the Aspen trees are pretty cool because they, you know, they allow pretty ample light to reach the floor. And so there's a good amount of grass that grows in them and they retain moisture pretty well. Is it just the quaking aspen that's a single organism, or is that all aspen trees that are connected? It's all it's all aspen trees, and the largest the largest aspen stand is a it's called Pando. It's out in Utah. Can you can you explain um, that for people that aren't familiar? Yeah, um, and actually, I think Pando is the oldest um, aspen stand, and it's estimated at like eighty thousand years old. So there, it's one of the oldest living organisms but also one of the largest. And so I think in uh, Southern Utah, also in like the San Juans of Colorado, there's, so the Aspen tree is just one organism and it's a rhizomatous root. So it just sends up shoots. Um, and and it, that's why it's very resilient to fires. Like when a fire comes through, it invigorates the growth and then more Aspens kind of grow. But yeah, it's, uh, it's not the largest living organism on earth. I think there's a, fungus like a mushrooms that's the largest and then i think the the quaking aspen tree is the largest single living organism on earth I think, I think they call it the largest air breathing organism on earth yeah i think you're right um and if you know if like when you're in the san juans uh here coming up within the next week or two or next three weeks or so is like the peak season when the aspens just turn like vivid orange and yellow. And now that you say that, I remember that we took like a, I think it was a scenic train ride out of Leadville. Yeah. And yeah. they were talking about that, that, you know, that this grove of aspens will turn a week before that grove, which will turn before that grove and they'll all three be different colors. And that's how we tell them apart is when they turn and what color they turn. And that's okay. Yeah, I know there's a bunch of different species of aspens, but I don't know that much about them. Even though I've grown up, I know that they're a heck of a place to take a nap. Okay. So since we're, we're talking about brush, I'm 
kind of wanting to circle back. You know, you're talking about like there's a little corner that's hard to get into, be very difficult to mechanize, clear it's 10 acres. I, I, I've got plenty of places like that. I just don't go over and look at them. I don't dwell on them. But I was thinking about that in like the context of if that was on the federal side of the fence. Okay. So the forest ranger that's in charge of it, he looks at it. He sees the problem. He makes his report. He gives it to his boss. His boss. Okay. This is a problem. Let's go look at it and go out and they look at it. Okay. Make a plan to deal with it. Makes a plan to deal with it. Gives it to the boss. Boss goes, okay, this is great. We got to take it to the committee. Committee looks at it. Reviews. Make these changes. Okay, we make these changes. Go back to the committee. All right, approved. Now we're going to submit it for funding. And like has to go through all these processes and all through these steps and judicial and, and, and review and funding and then all the environmental group challenge. And by the time they can actually do something, there's 15 other problems stacked up on top of the original problem. And the original solution that now they have money for five years later doesn't is not effective. Yeah, because it's grown 10x or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then the environmental groups will turn around and say, well, that project didn't work because it was ineffective and that was a waste of money. Well, it was a waste of money because it was five years too late because you held it up in, in lawsuits. I just... Federal government doesn't make anything better. Like if you, if somebody can name me a federal department or a government program that is efficient, effective, and a good use of taxpayer dollars, I will probably eat my hat without salt. <laughs> that wouldn't taste very good. <laughs> I, well, but if you want to see me eat my hat without salt, like <laughs> show me, show it to me, show me, show me a federal project piece of property program that's well-run efficient and cost-effective and a good use of taxpayer dollars. And I'll show you me eating a hat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's frustrating because yeah, it's just, uh, you know, you can, with the private lands, j just things happen so much more quickly. Um, and it's also, but it's also uh, frustrating here too, I guess if, you know, because if that place exists next to you, then that's obviously kind of a threat, right? And you know, there's not a lot you can do about it. I generally like to like to take a threat and you know turn that around and see if I can make that into an opportunity or a strength. But uh, if the federal government was my neighbor, that'd be an awful heart. That'd be a, a tough road to hoe, I think. And, you know, you know, out here in Montana and Colorado, whatever, there's a significant amount of public land. So is the public, um, I know in some places like Utah, the public land, private land situation is kind of like a checkerboard. Like, yeah, that's the same here. Um, the way it was originally laid out or the, the townships and the sections are all originally checkerboarded. Okay. Um, corner crossing what's That's your thoughts on, let's talk about corner crossing for a minute since you've got yeah it's a, it sounds like it's a contentious issue i don't my brother knows a lot about it just because he's in like he's a professional hunting guide and uh you know guides on private what's the this like for the listeners like 
what's the situation with the corner crossing thing from the 30,000 foot view and then maybe talk about it from your perspective? So um, here in the West, uh, like we just said, the, the private and public land is set up in a checkerboard pattern. So um, let's say the Southwest corner is private. That would mean that the Northeast corner is private. And then the Southeast and the Northwest would be public. And then at that, that, that junction of the four corners, um, supposedly you can cross there. If, you know, if you're on block management, trying to get to the next piece of public land and, uh, it was recently taken to court and I can't speak much into detail on this cause I, I don't know the specifics, but I know it went to court in Wyoming. I think it's and, an ongoing issue and there's, there's yeah. a lot of nuances and there's, there, mm -hmm. there's the landowners are fighting it in, in a very very strange way it seems like yeah so some guy uh, a private landowner sued um, somebody who corner crossed for whatever saying that he you know his feet swung into his property but that's basically it, the people who are for it you know it's like I'm going from one piece of public land to the next and I'm not physically touching your private property but then the private property owners are saying no you know you're at some point you're touching my fence or you're going through my property over it but you know nobody owns the air above the property i don't know because the the theory is that where property lines intersect it's an infinitesimally small point like it's an yeah. infinitely small point where they intersect and yeah. if you're going from one corner to the other you can't help but cross through the physical airspace of the private property that's on the adjacent sides. True. But then, you know, and I, it, it's part of the, and it's part of the landowning custom. I get it that, you know, the air, the air above it is mine too. And I own everything down to the earth's core. Okay. That's a legitimate viewpoint. We're not here, not going to argue or debate that. And like I said, it was, it's, it's, an, it's a complex issue. I don't personally have to deal with it. Kansas is 97-plus yeah. percent privately owned, and the state owns 2 2.5%, and, and the feds own like a little tiny chunk. And we're mm -hmm. cool with that. But that's not the situation for, for a lot of folks that you know not only listen to this podcast, but also live in that part of the world. And... You know, since the whole corner crossing thing kind of came into the public consciousness over the last couple of years and that big court case you mentioned, that's that's kind of my only experience with it. And it seems like I'm not sure how I would come down on it. I I'm I'm not sure how I would how I would feel if that was my land and it was checkerboarded in with a bunch of with a bunch of BLM land. Yeah. So at most of those corners. Is there some kind of a marker? Is there a fence? Is there a stone? Is or is uh, it a lot of times just in the pasture? Like a, it, yeah, it could be just a post, but if it's at like a, a township or a section or whatever, there there could be a like a concrete marker um, or some kind of survey marker, or like a reference tree or you know something like that. But really, there's there's probably there's not on most of it. There's not anything other than just the land itself. And, uh, you know, there's Onyx these days that you can use to pinpoint where you're at. Um, 
That's only yeah, I don't like five feet though. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> you know, so, you could. I might not have a problem if you stepped over the corner onto the other corner of public land, but if you're five feet on my side, we might have an issue with that. So again, um, it's one of those things that's like, it's incredibly complicated and nuanced, and it sounds like a very very simple thing. You know, it does. Uh, yeah, if you just think of, oh, I got to go from this corner to that corner, it sounds like a very simple thing, but. Then, you know, when you, like you say, you drill down into it, then it gets much more complex. So much so that, you know, it's just tied up in court. Interesting to see how that comes down. Yeah. So I don't think we, I don't think we agree on feedlots. No, I mean, I don't, I don't say, I I wouldn't say I disagree with you. Um. I'll say this. I think there's a lot of problems with feedlots, with big feedlots, like 10,000 small, 10,000, 1,000 head farmer feeders. I don't have a problem with you guys. It's like we talk about 50, 7,500,000 head yards. Yep. Like corporate owned yards. Y'all are gross. Y'all got some problems. On the other hand, there's eight point whatever billion people in the world. You know, we got to continue to support the narrative of feed the world, which, you know, we can, we can also talk about that, but there's beef consumers in the world. There's beef demand in the world. We've got to meet that demand and there's not a known pathway for the beef industry to transition to regenerative agriculture and continue production. There's not a known pathway at this time. That's not saying we can't get there. That's not saying we can't figure it out. That's not saying we can't transition pathway. The pathway to get there right now is not clear. So the fact remains, feedlots are a thing. They're going to exist in the world for the foreseeable future. Like that, And we have to deal with that. Can I support them? And I think that's, that's where it really comes down to. And for me, I think that has to be on an individual level. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. Like, I, I'm not... I wouldn't defend just any feedlot, right? And um, kind of where I, I go back to is the start of the feeding industry, how it kind of came about from feeding a byproduct that wasn't fit for human consumption, right? So um, was it like... You grow a couple of fields of wheat that's you know not high enough protein or not clean enough to go to the yeah. mill. Sure, feed that to cows, barley, or like, grain, whatever wheat mids or cottonseed holes or whatever, like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a cool way to get rid of a byproduct that otherwise you couldn't really do much. Right. Um, and so, no, I would agree with you on the, on the scale. And, and I definitely would agree that there is a, like the regenerative method is a, if there, if there was a clear path to that, I would support that. Um, and you know but then i have seen some cool feedlots like reeve cattle company i don't know if you know them out in garden city um but we you know there's a good feedlot out in garden city <laughs> i don't know if i'd say I'm sorry I'd say good or, <laughs> but it was interesting to see because um we went there and uh you know they would they had a very complicated kind of lagoon system that captured all the the, the waste and then they would filter that and then put it back onto their crops that they had out surrounding the feedlot. Um, and then turn that feed back into feed stuff for the cattle. 
but then the water would be recycled and they had a like a tilapia like a fish growing program that they would run that water through um and then they sold that fish i can't remember they sold it to a fish company um but then they had a cool science lab where they were doing a bunch of experiments but you know i think feeding cattle just for the sake of feeding cattle i wouldn't necessarily agree with that right like and i understand that the you know the consumer kind of dictates the market right because as a whole they've developed a taste for fed cattle and when they you know if they were to eat your beef it would probably taste different than their grain finished prime beef steak from i i know it tastes different <laughs> yeah it's, and it's so, supposed to it's yeah. supposed to yeah and i would agree with you um your grass-fed beef will taste different than my grass-fed beef because we have different grass the reason yes. corn, the reason beef tastes the same from New York to LA is because it all eats corn and soy. Yeah. Mostly. Yes. I know that's a generalization, but. But what I, where I think we would definitely agree is I, I am wholeheartedly against like just cutting down huge swaths of the rainforest for soy production and corn production just to feed the livestock, you know, and, and palm oil and stuff like that should be um, the thinning project and silo pasture in the rainforest right and, the, and then the american beef consumer wouldn't have to be upset that we're cutting down rainforest for you know cow farming or the yeah. cow farts are warming the warming the planet uh speaking of that have you heard of alianza de terra which is uh there's this guy uh john oh he went to the tc ranch management program um and i can't remember his last name, but he started this program with his wife because his wife grew up on a ranch in Brazil. She came to the TCA ranch management program. They met and he moved back down there with her. But what Alianza de Terra does is they've, I think they have like 70 or 80 million acres under kind of cooperative now where all the ranchers there, um, they in, they're more involved in like regenerative practices for the rainforest, and you know because they set aside a certain portion of the ranch as rainforest kind of in perpetuity. If I if I'm saying this correctly, or like that um, kind of thinning for more of a dynamic approach um, instead of just I mean because what the way John said it is like if you don't have this the economics is just going to come through and just wipe it out so he's convinced a sizable amount of ranchers there to engage in this program it's, it's pretty cool i should check it out okay i will check that out <clears throat> um so if you could start over on day one your ranching your ranching career what would you tell yourself or what would you do different Um, I think, you know, if I could start over from day one, knowing what I know now, I think I initially approached it because I wanted like, you know, to be the cowboy lifestyle, you know, um, and wanted more to be like a horseman slash cowboy. And now I have absolutely zero interest in being a cowboy. (laughs) Um, you know, like I, I want to be like, I want to be involved in land management 
and I understand that there's like some cowboying that comes with it. Um, and you know, and I wear a cowboy hat outside, but that's just like for sun protection. It's just because I happen to have been gifted a silver belly hat for my birthday at one time and, and I have it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I would approach it more from like a inquisitive. I mean, I've always been inquisitive about it, but, um, and, and obviously all this type of pasture management that like you do and Hobbs and everybody's doing now wasn't really that popular, even when I went to TCU ranch management. Um, but just come at it from more of a, a land manager standpoint, like how do I use this land to its highest capability or what's the best use for it? And I guess I've kind of mainly approached it like that, but you know, it was more originally because I wanted to just be on a ranch and, you know, kind of live the lifestyle, but now I'm very passionate about, well, this, this place, for instance, um, I would love to have the opportunity to improve it because right now it's been grazed kind of the same way it's been for the last 20 years. Um, doing some innovative things there, maybe doing some more management intensive grazing, like along the riparian areas to see how that happens. Cause there, there used to be a huge corridor of bison migration. So they would come through and I'm sure just wipe out the landscape for a little while. Eat everything and not come back for a year. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, do something like that and maybe some like a little more, uh, forward facing because it's right at the highway that goes right through it. And so people are always kind of curious about what's going on there. Um, you know, I, I guess if I owned the place, I would probably do some more community involved stuff, like bring people out and show them what we're doing and like, or the school kids anyway really try to get kids in, involved in this and like passionate about it and also communicate to the community that this is a 30,000 acre ranch that's on the edge of town. That's really providing a lot of open space and wildlife habitat in, in kind of a buffer for development because the Canyon we live in uh, you can't develop anything smaller than a 40 acre property anymore because the HOA has, basically the canyon association is that the limit but okay um but there's still a lot of room for growth and people would love to go that way are you afraid that it's gonna gonna be uh turned into house farms i at this point i'm not concerned because i think the owner has uh, the better interest of the ag-, ag in mind he has he has a few other ranches and so I think he's into that stuff. Okay. Um, so. Very cool. And then. Talk about your day job yet? Yeah. <laughs> so what's, <laughs> what's your day job? What actually pays the bills? <laughs> uh, well, my day job is a, oh, basically a website developer. And kind of, I started out, well, when I was developing, trying to develop that, that software, I learned how to design. And my dad was an artist. So I was was around art and stuff like that but uh started out as a graphic designer and then realized there was higher value in web development so taught myself how to do that um and now i build you know websites or web applications for 
uh, various groups. Um, I built a, an event management application for Yeti and their event management team. So they put on like, I don't know, 80 to 100 events every year that have, you know, multiple moving pieces and different people at them and uh, assets that they bring like tents and water and trucks. And um, so we use a software called Airtable, which is a, a cool platform uh, that's a relational database that functions kind of like Excel. Um, and they add all their events to that and it's uh, pushed into the web platform on the front end and presented kind of in a, in a pretty fashion, you know, for people that are uh, like, if they're just setting up the booth, they can go to the website and log in. You have to have a login and check like, oh, I need X, Y, Z for supplies. And then uh, the locations here, and this is what the, this is the air address to the Airbnb and these are how we get our tickets. And, um, so that was one I just did. And um, I built the, it's just a marketing site, but the website for Matador Ranch and Cattle, which is the largest ranch in Montana that was um, just acquired a few years ago by Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. That was kind of a funny story. My, I was headed down there to what I, I was under the impression that it was, you know, kind of an interview about whether they were going to use me or not. And, um, so we were headed down to the ranch and I was talking to my buddy, Rich, who owns the IX and he's like, just joking around. He's like, well, tell old Rupert. Hello. And, uh, we pull up and the guy who's kind of in charge is like, well, I got to go get the boss. And he, goes up and grabs Rupert Murdoch and he walks into the room and I was like, Oh, this is kind of serious. Didn't know it was you that kind of meeting. <laughs> 21st richest individual on earth walks into the room and tells, tells me that he needs a great brand and a, and a great website. And I was like, you know, obviously do my best, sir. <laughs> sure. I was like, don't you have like a thousand other people that do this for you? Um, but anyway, that was kind of a weird, uh, interesting experience. And, uh, you know, just to have somebody of that notoriety tell you that, you know, up to that point, I hadn't really had any major high profile and not that the Matador Ranch and Cattle is a high profile site, but. I, I think at least three or four people that listen to this podcast have heard of it before. <laughs> yeah. So might even be some neighbors on the far side that I know. Yeah. All right. Very cool. We need to get out of here. Um, okay. Where can folks find you? Uh, they can go to milhonedesign.com. Just M-I-L-H-O-A-N design.com. And my that's my phone number on the website. That's my email address. If you want to call me, you can. I probably won't answer just because I get a lot of spam, but if you leave a voicemail, I'll call you back. Or And then you can find that's where my Instagram and social. I'm pretty active on Twitter, but that's more and more involved in like kind of the tech community on Twitter. Um, I don't know actually what I'm going to do. Like, you know, this year with Instagram, I've been really talking about agriculture because there's just so many more things that I can talk about on a daily basis. Uh, but when October roughly 23rd comes around and the cattle are shipped back to twin bridges, 
that's kind of my my ranch job ends right there for the next eight months. I can see you're smiling and thinking about hitting the mountains and, hit, and <laughs> thinking about thinking about skiing. Yeah, the the snow is gonna be fun. I think that you know the people that follow me for the ranch content are kind of be like, wait, what happened to this dude? Like, hey, I started following this guy. Like, he's been ranching all now. He's now it's all about skiing. Now it's all about web design. <laughs> Whatever. I and mean, we are who yeah. we are. Yeah. Is it good? Do you have a good forecast for snow this winter? Does it look like it's going to be a good skiing year? You know, I don't know because uh, they, you know, the El, La Nina, El Nino cycles. It, I don't know. Last year was supposed to be kind of average, and we had one of the biggest winters we've ever had. Um, and then this summer was supposed to be hot and dry and we've had more moisture this summer than we've ever had. So I don't know. Kind of know what's if those forecasters even have a clue. Yeah. But, um, it is kind of a unique area where we live cause there's, you know, it's just a big ridge that, uh, and so the atmospheric conditions on the leeward side are a little different. It's, it gets quite a bit more moisture on that side, but, um, yeah, you never know. I mean, there where bridger bowl is a ski hill and i know we got to go but there's it's called the bridger bowl cloud and there'll be a cloud that hangs over it in the winter time and town will get maybe half an inch of snow and bridger bowl could get up to 50 or 60 inches of snow on the same on the same night five feet yeah okay like like the house is buried like it's a tunnel to the door okay <laughs> If I, if I make it up there before the snow melts this fall, will you promise you won't kidnap me and throw me in a helicopter? Oh, yeah. Except, uh, well, yeah, I definitely, that's it. I'll, I'll make that promise. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> I'll go, I might go skiing with you, just maybe not out of a helicopter. We'll just, we'll just tour around on the, on the Ranger. That might even be, a... that might be about my speed. It's been a few years since I've been on skis. <laughs> All right. What do you want to close it out with? Um, I don't know. I just, uh, I really like uh, your podcast and everybody that's on it. And I've just found so much inspiration from, I mean, I met Logan this summer and like people like him and Hobbs and uh, it's definitely in yourself have opened my eyes to a, kind of a whole new era of, you know, management and grazing management and stuff like that. So I would say to, you know, everybody out there, keep listening and yeah, definitely do that. Keep listening and make sure to like, share, and follow for more content. Stay inquisitive. <laughs> Stay inquisitive. I like it. Cool. Well, I think that'll do it. Appreciate you, Walker. You bet. I uh, appreciate you. Have a good one. Yep. Guys, have a great week. See ya. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts. So leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.